All right, so a few months ago, I was binge-watching some episodes of my favorite television show that I had kind of stored up, and Danielle walked in the room, grabbed the remote, paused the TV, and she said, how do I know you're not watching this show so you can learn how to kill me? Um, now, a little background information. My favorite shows are Dateline and Forensic Files. Like, I don't know if you ever watch Dateline and Forensic Files. I can watch them, like, all day for days and days and days, just the crazy stories of the crazy families that are on there. So Daniel says, how do I know you're not watching this so you can learn how to kill me? And I said, it's easy. They always get caught. Like, I, I wouldn't watch this if I wanted to learn how to kill you. And she says, that's, a, like, that's the wrong answer. Like, because you love me or because you would never kill me or anybody. It's like, that's just weird. So now every time she comes in the room and it's on, I just say, they always get caught. And she kind of walks out in a huff. But um, not even Dateline could really cover the family dysfunction uh, of a guy named Joe. Joe was born to a dad who had a lot of kids with a lot of different women because his grandpa had a lot of kids with a lot of different women. And it's just kind of the way their family did things. His great-grandpa, his grandpa, and his dad all made lots of money um, on kind of shady business deals. They never got caught for it. They never went to jail. But they all became very, very wealthy doing dishonest things in business. One of his brothers fathered a uh, child with a prostitute. Another one of his brothers killed uh, the man who raped his sister, which forced their family to kind of live on the run. And for four generations, this family just kind of lived every day at tension with each other and the surrounding community. Uh, probably the, the highlight of the dysfunction of Joe's life came when he found himself sitting in prison uh, in a foreign country, accused of a crime that he didn't commit, even though his DNA was all over the place. I mean, you look at this family, you say, well, it doesn't get much worse than that. Um, to say that this family was dysfunctional is an understatement. To say that this story is one of the greatest stories in the history of the Bible sounds a little bit heretical, but it is. In the next five weeks, we're going to study the life of Joe. You might know him as Joseph um, in a brand new series that we're entering called My Dysfunctional Family. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 50 because we find ourselves at the end of Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 50 being introduced to he and kind of his wildly dysfunctional family. A little background on who he was. His great-grandfather was named Abraham. His grandpa was named Isaac. His dad was named Jacob. There's not a much more spiritual family in the history of the world than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all their offspring. And there's not a much more dysfunctional family in the history of the world than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph had 11 brothers. 10 of them were older than him. Almost all of them were born to different moms than the one that he had, and his brothers hated him. They hated him so much that they decided to kill him. And instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. He ends up in, G in Egypt in prison, accused of raping a woman that he didn't rape, even though there was all kinds of evidence that said that he did. And he probably would have rotten died in that jail cell, except that God gave him the ability to kind of interpret the dreams of the ruler of Egypt so that he could rescue the people of Egypt and the people all over the, M the Middle East from a famine that was coming. So he ends up being second command in Egypt. He ends up selling grain to people from all over the Middle East who are starving, and he finds himself one day selling grain to a group of 10 men standing before him that look familiar, and he realizes, these are my brothers. These are my brothers who 22 years ago put me in a pit and then sold me to a group of people coming to Egypt. As we wade through his story, we find out that over the next 20 years, they have a pretty magnificent family reunion. We see them come back together. We see him meet his dad again in the midst of all this dysfunction. But after his dad dies, his brothers think now he's going to pay us back. 
He's been nice because he didn't want to upset dad, but now that dad's dead, we're in trouble. That's where we pick up the story today in Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. If you have your Bible, we'll read it together. Fire up your Journey Church app, pull your notes out so you can follow along. Here's what it says. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father has left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Here's why we're going to study the life of Joseph the next five weeks. I don't know that there is a man who was treated worse by his family in the entire history of the world than Joseph was. I don't know that there is a person who's been treated much worse by people that he trusted and cared about than Joseph was. And when we look at Joseph's story, somehow everything came back together. Somehow Joseph learned not just to deal with these people, but to love these people and to take care of these people. And that is the goal of this series over the next five weeks. If Joseph could learn to love his family, then all of us can learn how to love people who have hurt us, love people that make things difficult for us, whether it's a family member or a coworker or a boss or someone who coaches our kids. If Joseph could learn to get along with difficult people, there's a roadmap for us to learn to get along with difficult people too. And that is our goal the next five weeks, to help you deal with the difficult people in your life, maybe even begin to love the people who are causing you so much difficulty in your life. But it's gonna take a while to get there. Today, we have to start at the end of the story. Because if we don't start at the end of the story, we don't even know that it's possible. I mean, if we start with the difficult person, rather than learning how to deal with them, we could say, Christian, if you're talking about this person, that's never gonna happen. But when we look at Joseph and we read his story and we see him somehow you know, doing life with his family, we say, okay, if Joseph can do it, maybe I can do it. I don't know if I want to. You might be saying, I don't want to, but I'd like to learn how to just in case I can teach somebody else later. We have to start at the end of the story and we have to see what can happen to a dysfunctional family, what can happen to a dysfunctional relationship, what can happen with difficult people if we let Jesus kind of walk alongside of us in our relationship. But the willingness has to be there in your heart. Because if you say, I'm not willing to do that, then all the things we learn won't really matter. But if you're willing to say, all right, I'll let Jesus come into the midst of this difficult relationship and see what he wants to do, then maybe we have a chance. So I thought we'd start this sermon and start this series with prayer um, and ask God to give us the courage to open our hearts, and then we'll dig into what our hearts really need to look like for God to begin to work. So if you'd bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and here's, here's what I want you to picture while we're praying. Who's the difficult person in your life? that you wish would go away, but they're not going to, so you need to learn how to deal with them. Who's the dysfunctional person in your family causing you so much tension? Who do you see right now? Are you looking at a family member? Are you looking at your spouse? Are you looking at a parent or a grandparent? Are you looking at your boss or an employee? Are you looking at one of your kid's teachers or coaches? Are you looking at someone who works for you? Who's the difficult person in your life that you'd learn to love 
how to deal with. Because if you can see them and right now say, God, I'm open to you showing me what I can do to get along better with them, then I'd just ask you to pray that prayer. If you'd be willing to say, God, I'm open for you to show me what I need to kind of get past this difficult person, get along with this difficult person, maybe even love this difficult person. God, I'm willing, I'm open if you'll show me. God, you, you see all the people we do. You know all the circumstances that we do. So God, if we're open, fill our hearts with who we need to become and how we need to live. Lord, in order to deal with and learn how to love difficult people, help us as we learn this next five weeks. We ask these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Key question. Here's what we're asking today in all this series. What has to be the attitude of our heart if we're going to learn to love difficult people? Right? You, some of you just pray, God, I'm open to it. Just show me what to do. What has to be the attitude of our heart if we're going to try to learn how to love difficult people? We see three things in Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 that are the very starting point for this series. Number one, how do I learn how to get along with? How do I learn how to love difficult people? Number one, you have to be willing to trust that God can use all things for good. It doesn't mean all things are good. It doesn't mean God causes bad things. But you've got to be willing to trust that God can use all things for good. Listen to what Joseph said to his brothers when they came back and they said, please don't hurt us. Joseph had this view of his past. He trusted that God could use it for good. Joseph said this in Genesis 50 verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me. I know it. You know it. God knows it. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph was 56 years old when he made that statement. Approximately 40 years earlier, when he was about 17, he had a really bad day. Joseph was a pretty special kid in his dad's eye. His dad made him a special coat to make him stand out to his brothers. The dad sent all the brothers off to work, and he sent Joseph to spy on them. Go see how they're doing and come back and tell me. He didn't say go help them. He said, go see what they're doing and come give a report to me. His brothers hated him for that. So he comes walking into their field. They see him, and they say, you know what? We're sick of him telling dad we're not working hard enough. And everything else he was saying, um, let's kill him. And someone says, yeah, good idea. And then someone else says, well, listen, if we kill him, we're going to have to bury him. Lots of problems with killing him. Let's sell him. If we sell him, at least we have room, you know, money to eat fast food on the way home. At least, you know, we can profit something off it. So they threw him in a pit. They had lunch. A group of traders came traveling north to south in the land of Israel. They sold him, and Joseph ends up in Egypt. Now, listen, they didn't sell him so he could become the second strongest person in Egypt and save the Middle East from famine. They sold him so he would die. They never intended on him living. Because they knew if he lives, he's going to tell dad. They sold him thinking he'll be dead very quickly, but at least we'll make some coin on it. They knew they wanted him dead. He knew they wanted him dead. And God knew that they wanted him dead. God just used all those bad actions for good. And that's the thing about the doctrine of free will. If you're taking notes, I jot that word down, free will, or maybe type it into your phone. The doctrine of free will says this, that man can do whatever they want. God has given us a will that allows us to choose how we want to live our life. Some of us make bad decisions that end up having bad consequences for us. We all do it at some point in our life. God gives us the freedom to do that. But sometimes we make bad decisions that have bad consequences for others. And sometimes others make bad decisions that have really bad consequences for us. God doesn't cause that, but he allows it. He allows people to kind of make their own decisions. That's the thing about free will. He, he gave Joseph's brothers the ability to choose how they wanted to live their life. They wanted to sell him. 
But see, the thing about the doctrine of sovereignty, if you're writing it down, you say, how do you spell sovereignty? S, sovereignty. It's kind of a hard word. Just kind of guess and spell check. I'll get it for you later. The thing about the doctrine of sovereignty is this. God is still in charge of the bigger picture. Free will says that you can choose to live your life however you want it. Sovereignty says God steps into even the worst situations and he can turn things into good outcomes if we will give them to him. But you need to realize this treasure you carry called your past is something at some point you have to let go of. Say, wait a minute. Did you just call my past a treasure? Christian, my past is a lot of things. I wouldn't call it a treasure. I might say my, trash, my, my past is trash, but I wouldn't call it treasure. No, your past is really the most valuable thing in your life. Your past is absolutely a treasure. It's like a bag of gold that you carry around with you everywhere. Your past and what you choose to do with your past is the most valuable thing in your life. And your past is something that every day, sometimes many times a day, you have to choose to give away. And you can only give it to one of two people. You can give your past every day to God and say, God, I want you to use this. I know you didn't cause it, but I want you to use it. Or every day you can give your past to Satan. And he'll take it from you gladly. They both want it. You say, why? Because it's really, really valuable. See, Satan wants your past because he wants to abuse your past to weaken you. He would love for you to give him your past. That way he could remind you about it every day. Every time you fail, every time you're weak, every time something bad happens, Satan will take your past and he'll, he'll, he'll form a weapon to abuse you so you'll be really weak. But God, if you give it to him, God says, I won't abuse your past, but I will use it. And I'll use it to make you strong. I know life is hard. I know life has left you feeling weak. Satan says, I want to take your past that's made you feel weak, and I want to crush you with it. God says, I want to take your past, and I want to use it to shape a cane that will help you kind of have strength as you walk along in life. But you've got to give it to someone. You either give your past to God every day and say, God, use it, or you give it to Satan, and he will abuse it. But every one of us has to give our past to somebody, or we hang on to it. And here's the thing you need to know about the value of your past, the The past is really heavy. And if we hang on to our past, it becomes an anchor. And wherever we drop anchor, wherever in our past we choose to live, we don't float much further from there the rest of our life. Like a boat anchored, we might drift a little bit from the hurt, but we never move away from the hurt if we hang on to our past and are anchored by it. A verse that every Christian should know by memory, which is why I put it on your sermon notes. I rarely put verses on sermon notes because I want people reading their Bibles. I want people knowing where their Bible app is. I want people to make reference notes. But this one I've put on your sermon notes. You have easy access to it. A verse that every Christian should memorize is Romans eight twenty eight. It's hard to believe when life is hard, but it's true. Romans eight twenty eight says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Every Christian should know this as they reflect on the things in their life and they say, do I give this to God? Do I hang on to this? Do I let Satan abuse me with it? We know in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So Joseph's brothers, they knew they they wanted him dead. Joseph knew his brothers wanted him dead. God knew his brothers wanted him dead. But God had a different purpose for those very bad intentions. And there's no doubt that everyone in the room has been hurt through a difficult situation, 
through someone else's free will. There's no doubt that everyone in this room has been negatively impacted by somebody's bad intentions. Some of you by people who didn't care about you. Some of you by people who knew you. And they actually intentionally, very intentionally wanted to hurt you directly. But scripture says when you give those things to God, even those bad intentions God can use for a greater purpose in your life. This Tuesday, we had a memorial service for a young dad in our church, 35 years old, who just passed away from complications due to colon cancer. And the night before his memorial service, a businessman in our church kind of texted me and said, what does Tony's family need? I didn't even know they knew each other. So I kind of responded and, you know, I sent back the name and I said, this Tony? And he said, yeah, I heard the memorial services tomorrow. What does his family need? And I said, well, here's a, here's a couple things they've got going on over the next couple weeks that I think... Um, you could help with. You want me to keep you in the loop if they need anything? And he said, yes. My dad died of colon cancer several years ago. And when I heard that something had happened to them, I wanted to help in any way that I could. That's someone who took their past. My dad died of colon cancer too and gave it to God and said, use this. You see, if he'd have given that to Satan, Satan would have whispered something like this. See what God did? He took someone else's dad. Same kind of cancer. Too young. You can't trust God. You can't love God. Run away from him. He's not right. He's not fair. But this guy didn't do that. He handed his past to God and said, this has hurt like crazy, but I've made it through. And God says, great. Now you're going to help someone else make this through. You have to trust that God can use your past for good. It's difficult, but Joseph trusted his past to God and God used it to strengthen his future. If you want to learn how to deal with difficult people, If you want to learn how to survive in your dysfunctional family, you're going to have to be willing to trust that God can use even the bad things for good. Secondly, you're going to have to be willing, number two, to mourn. You're going to have to try, and this is really hard, to forgive the past. You're going to have to be willing to mourn the past. You're going to have to be at least open to trying to forgive the past. Look at verses 15 through 17. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong that we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Now, for what it's worth, I think they're lying. We read the story of Jacob and his sons. Nowhere does it say he told them to go tell Joseph, dad says, don't be mean to us. Like, it's, it's not in the record. These guys are manipulators. They're not great people. We never see a whole lot spiritually come out of any of them. I think they're lying to Joseph, just my personal opinion. I'll ask him when we get to heaven. But here's what they said. Dad said this. This is what you're to say to Joseph. Dad says, forgive us in the sins and wrongs we committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of your servants, uh, of the God of your father. And when their message came to Joseph, they said he wept. Listen, if you want to learn how to deal with and even love difficult people, You have to be willing to mourn what has happened. Like you've got to be willing internally and externally to mourn what has happened because here's the reality. Being willing to mourn the hurt takes a willingness to admit the hurt. Being willing to mourn the hurt, being willing to emotionally express how bad something is means that mentally you're beginning to process how bad something was. I found something interesting as I studied the story of Joseph in preparation for this message that I'd never seen before. Joseph was 17 when his brothers sold him into slavery. 
22 years later, when he was 39, he saw them for the first time. It had been 22 years. For the next 20 or so years, he would have interactions with his brothers. We read about a few of them. Every time we read about Joseph and his family, after they sold him into slavery, every time he's with his brothers or his dad, he's crying. Every time there's a narrative of him being with his family, he's crying. Let me read them to you. Genesis 42, 24. Sees him for the first time in 22 years. It says he turned away from them and he began to weep. He would send him home a year and a half later. They'd come back to buy some more grain, this time with his little brother, Benjamin. It says, deeply moved at the side of his brother, Genesis 43, 30. Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and he wept there. Genesis 45, 2, several weeks later, he, tell, he tells him, I'm Joseph. Here's what's going on. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Genesis 46, 29, when they finally go tell dad, Joseph's alive, come back. He sees his dad for the first time in maybe 25 years. It says, Joseph and his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father, Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. On the final day of his dad's life, Genesis 51, Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. You read that and you think, wow, this guy cried a lot. Listen, this guy got hurt a lot. See, man, he cried a lot. Listen, he got hurt a lot. Like a lot. And you never see him not carrying that pain. Nowhere do you see him smiling and laughing with his brothers. Every time he's around them, like he's tearful. It teaches us as we go through this that sometimes mourning is the first sign of healing. It's not the last sign of healing. It's the first sign of healing. You say, how is that? Because it's this admission that something's not right. That what happened wasn't right. That what happened was wrong and it hurt deeply. And if we can't mourn something, a lot of counselors say it's because we've not allowed ourselves to fully admit it. When Danielle and I talk with our counselor and I talk to friends of mine who are counselors and I read books about counseling, People always say one of the first signs of healing is just being willing to admit, listen, something went wrong. But there's something in Americans that makes us very hesitant to ever talk negative about any of our family members. In counseling, it would be called family secrets. Even if somebody has hurt you deeply or if somebody's dysfunction has impacted you really negatively, we never really want to point to them and say it's like it's their fault. They did it. And here's the deal. If we don't admit it, we can't mourn it. And remember the anchor, if we can't mourn it, we never move away from it. And if we don't move away from it, we repeat it. It's the abuse cycle 101. What people can't say is wrong. It's really wrong. They can't mourn. And if they can't fully mourn something, they never move away from it. And if they never move away from it, they recreate it as they pass down their family dysfunction. See, making excuses for the past often extends the dysfunction into the future. While being willing to mourn it at least allows you to begin to grieve what has happened. See, if you mourn it, you might be able to move away from it. And what you'll realize as you move away from dysfunction and difficult people, you're going to realize you're not alone. Everyone you know has some kind of dysfunction in their family or relationships that's causing them tension. I often wonder what what I'm going to do in heaven. Like eternal is a really long time. So it's like, okay, I'm going to play some golf and I'm going to go fishing. It's like, what are all the things I like to do? And after I've done this for a thousand years, then what will I do? So I often make things up about heaven. I wonder what we'll do in heaven. And I'm convinced there's a DFA 
group in heaven. You say, what's a DFA group? It's like AA before dysfunctional families, like dysfunctional families, anonymous, that like you can walk in and just kind of share your story. And and I'm convinced you can walk by a room in heaven and see a bunch of old guys sitting together in a circle and you kind of walk in and there's this really old guy and he says, my name's Abraham and I have a dysfunctional family. And everyone's like, hi, Abraham. And then there's a guy sitting next to him that kind of has a staff and he's like, my name is Moses. And I never got along with like my brother and my sister. And everyone's like, hi, Moses. And there's a guy, you know, sitting next to him kind of swinging a sling. And he's like, hi, my name is David. And my, ki- my kids just hated each other their entire life. And he's like, hi, David. And there's a guy next to him. And he's like, David's my dad. And I've been married 700 times. And someone's like, Solomon, we've told you sex addiction classes like next door. Like that's not a family. Your family issues. You have too many. Like stop getting married, right? And then you're like, my name's Christian. And here's what's, here's what's going on in, in my world. Like you realize when you begin to just dig into our past, everyone has one. Everyone's got some kind of difficult thing in their life. And what separates people who get healthy from people who can move on from people who are haunted is who gets the treasure, who gets the past. And the key lesson we learn from Joseph is in order to trust God with your past, you got to be willing to mourn it, which means you've got to be willing. You got to consider forgiving it. And here's what we learn from Joseph, particularly looking at his demeanor every time he's around his family. We learn forgiveness is a choice, not an emotion. His emotion always says this, I'm hurt. But his words say, I'm going to forgive. Every time we see him for 25 years, his emotions say, this still hurts. I mean, this hurts today like the day that you took the money from the hands of the traders. But I forgive you. Forgiveness is a choice. It's not an emotion. It's not something you feel. It's a choice to hand your past to God. Let him use it, even the hurt, so that you can move forward. See, Joseph rarely forgave without tears. Matter of fact, we never read that he forgave without tears, but he kept forgiving. He kept trying, he kept forgiving. And if you want to learn to deal with difficult people, if you want to learn how to love difficult people, you got to be willing to trust that God can take things and make them good. You got to be willing to mourn and forgive the past. And then number three, you've got to be willing to learn a new perspective and a new skill set so that you can love difficult people better. Here's where we're really going to try to sink into this series a little bit. You got to learn a new perspective and a new skill set in order to love difficult people better. For those of you who are parents, have you ever looked at your kids and kind of stepped back from them a moment and thought, oh my gosh, what they just did, like that is me. Like I haven't taught them that, but that face, that laugh, that attitude, that thing they just did, like that is me. You see yourself in them. I do that all the time with my kids, but particularly in how they eat. Like I don't have a sweet tooth, but I have a snack tooth. I, I, like I love kid snack food. I could eat every meal for the rest of my life at Quick Trip and be perfectly happy with that. Like I love all that stuff. I die at 45 of a heart attack, but I, but I could. I mean, I love that kind of snacky type food. And my daughter is me. Um, like every day I'll come home from school and she'll have a box of Cheez-Its or a little bag of goldfish or a bag of chips or some kind of ice cream. Like she, she is me. And every now and then I walk in and I see her kind of having her snack time. And it's like, how does she like the exact same things as I do? I never told her this is what it meant to be my daughter. She just, I mean, she's like, she's me in that area. 
My son, on the other hand, wants to eat every meal of his life at Chick-fil-A. Three meals a day, all of them. And as I was telling my mom and dad, my kid's going to break me because he wants to eat every meal out. My mom said, you were the exact same way. Remember, you used to go to Dairy Queen every day to eat. The family be eating one thing, and you would go to Dairy Queen to get a cheeseburger. And I thought, oh my gosh, I forgot. It was the only restaurant. If you, you know you live in a small town when Dairy Queen's a restaurant. Uh, like it was the only place that served hot food in my town. And I would. I would go mow yards for the summer, and I literally would spend money the minute I got it buying food at Dairy Queen. It's like, oh my goodness, my son has got that from me. And it's like, how, how have they become me without me trying to make them me? And then every now and then you watch your, their dysfunction and you think, that's me too. See, the dysfunction in my kids, they've learned from me. The dysfunction in your kids, they've probably learned from you, which means the dysfunction in you has probably been passed down from someone to who it was passed down. And the dysfunction and the difficult people that you're struggling with has probably been passed down to them as well. That doesn't excuse anything. But it begins to explain some things about how we can look at difficult people in our life. See, a new perspective says something like this. Pastor Pete Scazzaro, who's a pastor of New Life Church uh, in Queens, New York, has written a lot about family, has written a lot about healthy families, has written a lot about counseling. And he says this about just learning to deal with who you are and difficult people in your life. He said, listen, Jesus might be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Jesus might be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. And probably the way you react to stress is just like grandpa did it. And probably the way you choose to handle conflict in your marriage, probably just the way grandpa did it. And probably the way you spend money and your vices in life, probably just the way grandpa did it. Like, no matter how much we love Jesus, there's some things in us, hardwired into who we are from our family that have been passed down that you have to deal with. And if you begin to see things that way, all of a sudden you begin to look at the difficult people in your life a little bit differently. And here's what I think the key to this whole series is. When we can learn to love difficult people and see them the way that Jesus sees us, we have found the key to dealing with with difficult things. When you begin to look at your boss who treats you and everyone else like garbage, and you think, you know what, he probably does that because that's the way his boss treated him, or worse yet, that's the way his dad treated him every day of his life, it doesn't excuse anything. But it begins to explain, and you almost think, I feel bad. When I look at how they treat people, I feel bad that they were probably treated that way their entire life. When you're trying to handle some conflict with someone who won't return a call, who won't return a text message, who just has kind of shut you out and you think, you know what, at some really critical point in their life, something happened and they reached out to someone who refused to give them an audience. And when I think about how bad that had to have hurt them, that they now do the exact same thing to everyone else, it doesn't excuse it. But it begins to explain maybe why people are the way that they are. And all of a sudden we think, man, Jesus, I know I've got some things that need help, but they've got some things that need help. And all of a sudden I have a new perspective of dealing with difficult people, even trying to love and pray for and care about difficult, difficult people. See, when we love difficult people like Jesus does, it changes everything. And here's what Joseph said to his brothers. One of the key verses in this whole text in verse 19 Joseph said this. They came and they said, please, please don't hold a grudge against us. Please don't pay us back. And Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? 
Joseph said, like, listen, don't be afraid. Like, I'm not God. Here's what he's saying. Listen, only, first, only God can judge you. He's saying, listen, I'm not God. Only God can judge you. But then he says this, and I am not going to judge you for your past more than I want God to judge me. Joseph, in this line of saying, am I God, is saying, listen, one, it's not my, not my job to judge you. Secondly, if it was, I would not want to judge you for your past more than I am being judged for my past. So I'm going to forgive you. Because forgiveness is a choice, remember? And that's how God forgave us. Like, think about it. Did God choose to forgive you before you were sorry? Before you changed, yes or no? One more time. Did God choose to forgive you before you were even sorry or before you changed, yes or no? Yes. It was his choice. Romans 5, 8 says it this way. God demonstrates. He shows how much he loves us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. He made the choice that he would forgive us if we would accept it. You say, yeah, that's for sinners, but I, you know, I'm not really, I don't think that verse applies to me. Just so you can know that the context of this full verse, look at verses seven and eight. Paul says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But you're neither of those. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for us because we're good people. He certainly didn't die for us because we're righteous people. He died for us because he wanted to forgive us and he was choosing to love us. When we look at the difficult people in our life, if we see them like Jesus sees us, we might see this. These are not good people. These are certainly not righteous people. But they are people I can choose to forgive. And they are, they are people I can try to love. It's how Jesus sees me. It's how I'm going to try to see the world. And if we could get our hearts there, then we could learn some really valuable new skills in the next month to help us kind of learn to deal with and love difficult people. Here's what we're going to try to teach you the next month. If your heart is open to it, here's what we're going to try to learn. Number one, understanding the current role in our family. I found counseling families that a lot of the tension in families is just not clearly understanding, communicating, and managing our roles in life and how they change as we live and grow. That'll be next week. I've learned if we can, number two, communicate in advance of conflict, it helps a lot. You say that's really hard to do. It is, but it's easier than communicating through conflict. But we're going to look at both of those things. And then we're going to try to learn how to find a healthy spiritual family because some of you are going to, through this series, learn to admit and mourn something that's happened to you, but it's not safe to go back. Like you've endured some type of abuse that emotionally you're going to learn to process, you're going to learn to mourn. We can connect you with a counselor to help you. And you're going to emotionally choose to move on from a situation, but you're never going to be able to go back to it because it's just not safe for you emotionally, physically, or in any other way. So we're going to try to find out how to connect you to a spiritual family who is always there to put their arms around you. But all four of these things demand working through the irritation that difficult people cause us. I told you I think a lot about heaven. I don't know if you've heard any heaven jokes lately or you've just studied heaven enough to know, but if you've heard a good heaven joke, you know that the gates of heaven are called what kind of gates? The pearly gates. It's because they're made of pearls. Literally, if you study the composition of heaven, the Bible says there are 12 gates into the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, 12 representing Joseph and his brothers, Jacob's 12 sons, and all of them are made of a single pearl. When I think of how big a pearl would have to be, to be a city gate, 
I don't think, wow, that's a big pearl. I think, wow, that's a big problem. Because I don't know if you know how a pearl's made or if you've ever gone on vacation and paid the guy to dive down in the deal and get a clam and pull it out and give a little pearl necklace to you, you know, your daughter right in front of her and to string it up and put it on her neck. But a pearl is made when a single grain of sand gets embedded into a clam or a little muscle. And the irritation that it causes that clam causes it to produce this like mineral coating that just eases the discomfort. And depending on how long the discomfort lasts depends on how big the pearl gets because it just keeps producing this mineral element until it doesn't hurt anymore. That's how a pearl is made. It produces the element until nothing hurts inside that living clam. And when you think of the pearly gates and you think of a pearl that size, it's like, that must have been a really long, irritating process for that clam to create a pearl that big. But those have to be the 12 most valuable pearls in the history of mankind. Which means the thing right now that's causing you the most irritation, if you could learn to produce spiritually the minerals called grace, if you could learn to produce coat after coat, layer after layer of grace on the irritating people in your life, the irritating family members in your life, the irritating situations in your life, it might take a really long time, but after coat after coat after coat after coat of grace, eventually not only will you really understand Jesus, But maybe some of your most difficult relationships will become some of your most valuable relationships because you'll have spent so much time trying to bring comfort to dysfunction and to discomfort. It's the goal of this series. And if you'll travel with me, we'll take a month trying to learn how to deal with difficult people, maybe even love difficult people the way that Jesus loves us. Let's pray together.